It is important and refreshing to receive a journal like Sources. I rely on Sources for a deeply informed and well-curated collection of essays responding to current events and issues in contemporary Jewish life. Hi, I'm Claire Sufrin, editor of Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. We get in-depth information from noted scholars, often in dialogue with one another, which is not to say always in agreement. In the newly released spring issue, scholars examine the theme of Jewish life tomorrow, reimagining key Jewish concepts for the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Identity Crisis, a show about news and ideas from the Shalom Hartman Institute. I'm Yehuda Kurtzer, president of Shalom Hartman Institute in North America. We're recording live today on July 8th, 2020, and we're also recording as part of Hartman Institute's All Together Now summer program with, as of last week, 8,500 people taking classes with us online around the world, uh, finding ways to study Torah even in the midst of a pandemic or maybe uh, because of it. Uh, I'm really excited about today's conversation. There's a lot going on in the world politically. There's a lot that we could be talking about. Uh, and we're in, we are, I don't want to say instead, um, perhaps as a route to talk about so much of the disruptions and challenges that we're, we're facing around the world today, we're going to talk about Torah, about the democratization of Torah, uh, places that are providing access to Torah, and some really new, exciting initiatives in the world of Torah that I think that we as the Jewish people need to take stock of. The truth is that the world of Torah, yeshivot, places of Torah study, uh, are actually not usually associated with liberal progressive causes. There's all a bunch of interesting historical reasons for that. They're called enlightenment, secularity, modernity, capitalism, uh, all sorts of ways in which the traditional yeshiva is associated with a certain type of Jew. But there are unbelievable trends taking place both here in America as well as in Israel around the creation of new liberal, progressive, radical sites for Torah study, hermeneutical strategies for reading Torah, uh, people being trained to read, speak, teach Torah in all sorts of interesting ways. And I'm, I'm really excited to be joined today by two of the people who I see as great leaders and innovators in this space. Rabbi B'nai Lapi is the founder, president, and Rosh Yeshiva of Savara, a traditionally radical yeshiva. And Ariel Rivera Corman is the co-founder and executive director of Amud, the Jews of Color Academy. We're going to talk today about uh, about the meaning of Torahs. I would love to hear from both of you and, and for our listeners I gave them your names, your titles, and the description of your inst- and and just the names of your institutions. But maybe you could tell us a little bit more about what your institutions are and what you're seeking to do. Uh, Benet, thanks for being here. Why don't you start with you? Sure. So Svar has actually been around for 17 years, although it, it feels like our our time has finally come and the world uh, has caught up with us a bit. Um, Svara is a radical reenvisioning of what the yeshiva could be and what we think it actually was initially. And it's a, a new vision for distributing the smartest, most sophisticated version of Judaism that we have. And that's what exists in the Talmud. For 2000 years, we've actually done fairly well with having just 1% of the Jewish people having access to this inner tradition, the tradition of the Talmud, where it tells us how really to make traditions and radically revise and upgrade our tradition in the world around us. And what Svara seeks to do is 
open up that technology to the other 99%. And specifically, the center of the bullseye of that other 99% being those folks who have been marginalized by the old regime and the old system. And by old, I mean essentially current, um, or at least what is seen as the current system. And um, <laughs> I'll, stop, I'll stop there. More to say about that, but I'll hand it over to Ariel. Thanks, Vinay. Thanks, Yehuda, for the introduction. Like Yehuda said, I'm Ariel Rivera-Corman. I'm the executive director of Amud, the Jews of Color Torah Academy. And Amud is a Jewish educational space for Jews of color by Jews of color. That's sort of the, the ikar. That's the base of what we are and what we do. We exist to empower Jewish people of color who oftentimes find themselves alienated or sidelined by racism in majority white Jewish institutions. And, and so Amud really exists to allow Jewish people of color to access the Jewish education needed to be the empowered members and leaders of the broader Jewish community that they already are. It creates space to celebrate marginalized customs and traditions within the Jewish world uh, and beyond, uncover lost histories and, and really rebuild culture. Um, and on our website, we have that in parentheses because it is a rebuilding, a returning, and also a building. There is newness in what we're doing um, that, that we're excited to own as well. Okay, so both of you are, um, are in, in many ways hovering around some of the same language that relates to individuals who are left out of mainstream institutions, the way in which the, the Jewish community, kind of capital T, capital J, capital C, thinks of itself as being uh, inclusive, but ultimately design spaces that privilege and, and prioritize certain groups uh, and certain identities. But what's fascinating is, and I guess we can unpack this, and I, I'm sure that the framing of this is problematic, but like there are there are a lot of ways to go about the work of activism towards the work of inclusion and diversity. It's just kind of anthropologically interesting to go back to Torah, <laughs> to go back to classical sources, especially those classical sources that themselves are rooted in a patriarchal tradition, a misogynistic tradition, a heteronormative tradition. So what is that? What, like first, just I know it's kind of a, in some ways a softball, but like why Torah? Uh, why why is this the work of activism that you've chosen to to put your passion in? And I and I recognize that by asking it, it's an unfair question. The 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 man in the yeshiva doesn't get asked why he spends why he spends his time learning Torah. But you you both kind of surfaced in your description of the yeshiva that it is also correcting for some social and political flaws in our community. So I'm curious just to hear from you, even on a personal level, what Torah is about for you. Great. Yeah, I mean, there, there's so much packed into what you just shared. With the question, why Torah? There's another question, why not Torah? For me, actually, the, the beginning of the answer I'll give today, it actually lies in, in one of my favorite books, which is the Brown Driver Briggs Dictionary. I'm a big language person and, and I love the dictionary. Because when you look at any verb, any root, um, you will get a host of meanings and, and recognize that the meaning that you've received, if you have received um, quote unquote traditional Jewish education, we can unpack what that means, may not be the only option. And so to me, Torah is this unbelievably alive framework for different kinds of connections. The fact that there is so much beauty there I believe must be lifted and must be engaged with, even as the fact that there is so much disturbing material there as well also must be lifted. And there are connections that people can draw 
between those parts, the difficult parts and the quote unquote good parts, the good and the bad within each individual word. And I believe that people who have been marginalized in various ways are perfectly positioned to add their own Torah into this kind of web of past and present and meaning and other meaning. So, so to me, it's really the image that comes to mind is really this web um, that, that kind of ignites and gets stronger every with every person who is part of it. So Torah, Torah is living. Torah is not just the book or the books. Torah, Torah is living. And I agree completely with Ariel that folks who have been marginalized are not only perfectly positioned, but they're precisely the people whose voices we need. And we've always needed. It's always those on the margins of a revolution who become the leaders of the next revolution. I just want to address the issue of inclusion for a minute because it's one of my pet peeves. Let me just say for the record that inclusion is over. Anyone who's working on inclusion ought to give it up, okay? It was always too little too late and it's always been wrongheaded. And I think Amud and Svara, what we're onto is the power of what can happen and the originality and the uniqueness and the preciousness of the Torah that can be surfaced by people when they do not need to adapt to a different culture or speak in a way that is palatable to or even understood by others. So stop doing inclusion. It's not going to help anybody. It's going to like make you feel good, but it's really not going to work for, for anybody. Okay. So let's just check that off. All right. Now let's go back to an example of why an identity specific space is so powerful. And I want to start with my idea about donkey stories. And it's an idea that I borrowed from the British theologian, Rabbi Jonathan Maginot, who wrote an essay once called, How Would a Donkey Read the Bible? And his insight was that we all bring our lived life experience to everything we do. It, it is the lens through which we experience everything, including our tradition. So, so my question is, you know, if donkeys read Torah, what stories would they notice that all the rest of us are missing? They'd notice all those donkey stories, right? There's a, a story with a donkey. Oh, there's that's me, they'd say. I'm there. Oh, I'm there. Okay, that's a donkey 1.0 story. That's me. I recognize myself there. But a donkey 2.0 story that they're also going to recognize is the story that is about someone who is carrying the burden that's been placed there by somebody else. They're going to go, oh, I know what that experience is like as a donkey. And, and that story and the values and the, the mounds and mounds of laws that are kind of come out of that insight needed that person who had that donkey experience to be created. So as a queer person, as a person who was on the receiving end of folks holding up Leviticus to me and pointing, you know, at the verse and saying, you can't be gay and Jewish because it says so right here. Or at best, I'm so sorry, there's nothing we can do. I wish we could do something, but it can't be changed. When I began to learn Talmud, and I saw passage after passage after passage dealing with how the rabbis overturned Torah 
using their svara, which was a new word for me. Please tell me why we're not teaching this word in every Hebrew school in the country, right? Their moral intuition. Wow, if I had known there was such a concept in my tradition, which the rabbis say is a source of law equal to Torah, oh my gosh. If, if, if I could have known that, if I could have known that the tradition trusted me and what my kishkis told me, that would have been very powerful. Because what people tend to do is they do trust their kishkis. They trust their inner voice. And if it is in deep conflict with their tradition, they simply leave or they suppress it to their own peril. And what the rabbinic tradition was always about is creating that third option. As a queer person reading the Talmud and I see, oh my gosh, I've actually been told a lie. The Torah isn't the last word, it's the first word on a tradition that then prioritizes our svara to make better and better and better. And the tradition has always been radical. Wow, I wish someone had told me that. And, and that's why we have at Svara now what we call a traditionally radical lens. And every time we learn what we're reading for is what Ruth Calderon points out that Walter Benjamin calls reading against the grain. It's not queering the text. It's seeing the queer in the text. It's seeing the radical voice in the text which is not only the rabbi saying, hey, this is what we did, but stand on our shoulders and you do this too. We don't know what's going to bother you in your time. Here's the stuff that bothered us and here's how we fixed it. Now you go fix it for your time. I just want to jump in, jumping off of what, what you're saying, which I'm hearing, you know, the way that Svara operates is to be in contact and in engagement with those rabbis, with the radical elements in the Talmud. I think another answer to the question, why Torah is, is the interpretive community. What kind of interpretive community do you join or do you claim belonging to when you engage with Torah? One more piece that I'll just share is that because I had access to Hebrew, I had a moment in the, in the rare book room at Columbia University looking at a, a Moroccan yeshiva student's notebook from the 1700s. And I felt with that notebook in my hand, who else is in this interpretive community? Who else haven't we heard of? And what tools could actually be given to those of us who are seeking those ancestors and those lineages to actually find those sources as well? So I think it's, it's a yes and. It's the radical that exists within the rabbinic tradition. And also it's a broadening of what what is canon even. Yeah, I mean, I, I identify with a lot of how you're talking about Torah. It's kind of, it runs deep in our work at the Institute um, of Judaism as a, as a constantly interpretive tradition. Uh, and I think that there are all sorts of reasons that I, I think in some ways are the partly having to do with the Protestantization of Jewish texts. Too many of us Jews have internalized that the encounter with text is the encounter with something maculate and something whole. And, um, and that it's actually supposed to be awe-inspiring. And when you're really in the business of Torah, you're, you're actually dismantling the core elements of what's there to try to actually empathize with whether it's the Savara, whether it's the Takana, with the feeling of like being inside something in order to wrestle with it. I guess, I guess the thing though that I'm, that I'm thinking about and struggling with is, so everybody who has ever studied Torah or taught Torah has had their conscious and implicit political biases and political agendas of what they're trying to do with the texts. Right? Everybody does that. So you put it, you wear it on your t-shirt, Benet, right? You're, I'm yes. saying this is what I am and this is what I'm doing, right? Um, and I, I admire that, especially because it helps to telegraph 
to your students that they have access. They can be part of this and they can bring their whole selves. It also opens up the deceit that's oftentimes in this business, though, is authenticity is surfaced by not disclosing the agenda of just being a good reader, right? The, there's a, such an ease of dismissiveness of like, well, if it's queer Torah, then you're, you know, you're, you're telling us exactly what it is that you're going to read into the text. So, I, you know, I don't have a great, it's not a great question. And I know there aren't great answers, but let's work through that. Like, what is that? What does it look like to actually have a, a, a transparent hermeneutic that's actually invested um, with your students and with your institution to do that? And how does that live together with everyone else in the world of Torah who's doing the same thing, but not admitting that they're doing it? Boy, everybody should be admitting what they're doing. Everyone should know what they're doing. And every good educational space knows what its culture is, knows what its orientation to their material is. What do I believe this text is? Why do I think it's important? What do I think it has come here to do? And what do I want you, my students, to do with it? They need to have a fabulous pedagogy. And they need to have a certain set of pedagogic beliefs, whatever they are. And they need to know what all four of those things are. We call ourselves a queer yeshiva, but our takes aren't queer in the sense of being about sexual orientation or gender. Um, We understand queer to be a much broader thing, right? A person is queer if they have had a profound experience of otherness or marginality, the insights from which they walk through the world as a critique on the mainstream. That's a political stance. And as far as a very political space, every yeshiva has been a political space, or at least I should say, originally, the original yeshivot were political spaces. And the Talmud was a political document. It was meant to surface the injustices, the systemic injustices in our own tradition and the world around us. It has done that camouflaging perhaps too well, and it's been misunderstood and read as a normative document, as if it were a code. This is how we should behave. And these yeshivot of modernity are now the institutions where folks who want to be preservers of the status quo go to learn that status quo with an orientation of literacy to pass it on as literacy. Well. If you're in a time of stability when your tradition is working really well for people, you do teach for literacy. But if you're in a time of what we call crash, of enormous upheaval, when the tradition as it is transmitted and taught and institutionalized doesn't work for most people, you don't teach for literacy. You teach to create players, to create a new system that works better. Uh, I think... You couldn't have picked a a better final transition for me, you know, um, to create players. That's really what the core of what Amud is doing now is. Um, For us right now, actually, uh, we we have certain principles that guide our space. And I think you're right, Benay, to say that the the principles that guide the space and the principles that guide the text in relationship to text are related and, and deeply invested in each other. One piece, and that's a norm that we have, is that participants at Amud are welcome to bring in wisdom from their lived experiences. Um, and that can, though it may not necessarily include experiences in the non-Jewish world, perhaps as non-Jews at one point, or people who were not yet identifying as Jews, or from ancestors who are not Jewish. 
if there is an allowance and an understanding that wisdom comes from so many sources, and that if it's coming through us, it's coming through Jews, and it's coming through deep engagement with Jewish text. But, but that ability to bring in those outside influences without them being deemed um, of Odazara, deemed too foreign, is another guiding principle of our space. And that being said, because we're creating players, it's been incredibly ranging. Uh, uh, the hermeneutical strategies that our teachers have brought have really been ranging. We've had orthodox teachers. We've had secular teachers. We've had teachers who choose to include more contemporary texts or more traditional texts, but there's always a combination in what we do. I, I want to piggyback on what you're saying, Ariel, when you talk about the fact that you really value the Torah that comes from places other than the Jewish tradition that folks are bringing into your space. It, if you look at any successful, what we call option three space in the Jewish world, you will see a disproportionate number of non-Jews and converts. And it's not an accident that among the early rabbis 2000 years ago, there was a disproportionate number of converts and children of converts. I want to come back to that actually, because um, there's sorts of imp interesting implications for the, the network of communities that are growing up around our work. And, um, and although we don't, we don't position our work. We don't talk about ourselves as a yeshiva. We don't call ourselves uh, an academy or a Beit Midrash. But Torah is the commodity with which the Hartman Institute uh, operates in the world. I guess the from a kind of intellectual standpoint, our, the significant other that we're always in dialogue with, or at least we try to be, is scholarship because of a belief that like, t in addition to the authenticity that you're talking about of lived human experience, Torah has to speak Lashon B'nai Adam. I think that's what it's about, is speaking a language of lived human experience. We also believe it also that it has to have moral and philosophical integrity, which is also measured in ways that, that come out of the academy, because the academy is the place where, in some ways, keeps us honest uh, as the Jewish people. But I guess I'm curious, like, and I, I wonder about this sometimes myself as a teacher of Torah, who the client is. And I'm sorry for the mercantile analogy, but who's the client? Because Sometimes I find when I'm teaching Torah, that the client is like the Jewish people. How do we give the Jewish people tools to be able to withstand our challenges? Sometimes it's individual Jews. How do I give this person access or how do I, sometimes it's myself. Like if you're really in the business of Torah, you're searching for things your whole life and trying to get back to certain answers. And sometimes I feel like the client of the business of Torah is the Torah itself. I feel like a lot of the work around bringing voices into or noticing voices in the tradition is enabling the Torah to, to live on for generations beyond. And it's not for the Jews, it's actually for Torah itself. So I, I don't know, I guess I, I bounced back and forth on the question who the client is in my own teaching. I'm curious where, if you've thought about it and, and who do you think you're serving and when? I'll start by adding one more possible client, which is the world at large. I really believe in the power of Torah, and I'm, I'm using that term broadly, but I'm also using that word specifically at the same time. The power of texts written in traditional Jewish languages, including Hebrew, Yiddish, Latino, Judeo-Arabic, etc. I believe in the power of Jewish people of color accessing that Torah and radiating out. And some of the people who come to Amud are firmly situated in majority white Jewish community. Some of the people in our community are not uh, and are 
doing Judaism on their own in families in largely non-Jewish community. So I think the the belief or the the gamble really is that the wisdom that comes out of these courses and out of the individuals who are part of our programming will make the world a better place wherever they are. I think that's sort of the, the ultimate client is everybody. And then I think, you know, then I can answer those questions more specifically depending on, you know, the, the particular circumstance. I will also add that all of our teachers are also Jewish people of color. And so there's always an exchange. The client in that way, even though we are, we are paying our teachers, is also the teacher, is also giving Jews of color an opportunity to workshop ideas, insights, classes among other Jewish people of color. So it, there's, there's always an exchange. But I, I think your question, what seems embedded in your question is really the question of priority. Maybe tell me if, if you hear that right. In what in every moment, who is the primary person you're trying to reach? I think it's possible. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think it's it's also you know, I guess at Hartman we we kind of take the approach, and as a few people have written about, talked about it. Gordon Tucker's talked about this for many years, which is it's no real thing as Torah lishma. There's no real thing as Torah for its own sake. There's always some sake, right? What's the sake? Torah lishma is for the sake of something, and might be for Torah. And it might be for people, but there is a there's a way in which living in that story and being in that discourse actually does transform people's lives. And so there there's a power in that and therefore a responsibility for those who are excellent teachers and charismatic teachers. Tremendous amount of power is being transacted through the teaching of Torah. But there also is like a directionality. If I'm doing this, then what do I want my Torah to to achieve in the world? And I'll just say one other thing, Ariel, which is I really love what you said about what this does for your teachers. And I, I've found this very much in my work, that when you give people who have Torah an opportunity to teach Torah, it's an unbelievable, for many of us, like there's nothing else we could have done. <laughs> but it's more than that. It's actually like you're, bre- you're allowing people who have wisdom and knowledge to breathe that into the world. And so it's not just for the students, it's oftentimes for the, for the integrity and the growth and, of, of the teachers themselves. Um, I, I don't think we oftentimes think about that enough in terms of the transaction between teacher and student. Uh, go ahead, Benet. Uh, well, first of all, I want to say that your question is something that I ask myself all the time, and I drive everyone on our staff and faculty wild constantly asking this question. As a beginning to the answer, I want to paraphrase, and I'm not sure I'm being fair to him, but I want to paraphrase one of your own scholars, Moshe Halbertel, who speaks about the Talmud not so much as a normative document, but as a formative document. And I, I think we, I, I, I tend to exaggerate and, and say it's not at all a normative document, it's only a formative document, but he probably uh, would say it, at least it's not only. And what I think he means by that is, it's not here to tell you how to act. It's here to shape you into a certain kind of human being. And the way we learn in the Beit Midrash, the way we learn Talmud, and it's not the way Talmud is learned everywhere. I'll, I'll just speak for Svara. The way we learn Talmud at Svara, it's very much as what I think it was designed to be, which was a spiritual practice, as a practice designed to create a certain kind of human being, as the most insider directed technology to do what the entire Jewish enterprise is here to do, which is create a certain kind of human being, a person who is deeply empathic, profoundly connected and accountable to others, 
who can not only tolerate, but has an appetite for paradox, contradiction, uncertainty, complexity, because that's, that's the way the world is. And you do a better job of walking through the world if you are that kind of person. And it's this learning of Talmud is a technology that helps us refine our svara, that moral intuition that we bring to bear on the tradition itself as well as the world around us. But at the end of the day, I think my actual client is the Talmud itself. My first obligation is to the Talmud. It's who I hold in my hand all the time and feel, you know, is going to ask me at the end of my days, you know, whether I did a good job of taking care of them. Did I do a good job of not treating it the way we treat the Torah, you know, in this sort of, oh, I, take care of it, don't mess with it, pass it down the way we actually do with the Torah scroll in the synagogue. You know, you did a good job if you handed it down to your children exactly the way you received it. That's not what it's there at all to do. But did I help it be seen for what it actually is in that I help it be used as this tool for sometimes radical transformation of the world. If I can hand the Talmud down to the next generation, seeing that that's what it is, I'll feel that I, I serve my client well. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit actual Torah for a second. One of the things, I'll tell you what I'm struck, one of the things I'm struggling with this summer, and I'm doing a bunch of teaching through the Hartman platforms about it. For me, just personally, the, the transformational experiences around Torah were in the encounter with teachers of Torah who didn't look, talk, or behave like the people I grew up with. I went to an Orthodox day school. I spent two years in yeshiva in Israel. But the real Torah teachers who changed my life were Sharon Cohen-Annisfeld as a teacher of mine in the Bronfman Youth Fellowships and Diane Coloresis and Michael Paley and a whole bunch of people who, who shattered for me the relationship between this is what a teacher of Torah looks like, talks like, behaves like, believes, acts politically in the world. You know, it, it really that and, and at the core of a lot of that was was a Torah of pluralism, real belief in in that in a pluralism that and I, as I was just teaching about this today, was mined in a deep way in the 1980s from Hillel and Shammai. <laughs> And from the bat kol comes out from heaven and says, Elu ve'elu, and becomes like a big part of the building of an industry of a certain type of Jewish education. What I'm really struggling with now is the increasing feeling, and I can't nail it down totally, but the increasing feeling that the pluralism of Hillel Shammai is basically a bourgeois discourse. Pluralism is fades in the face of injustice. Pluralism serves those who are already in the Beit Midrash that it, it's, it talks a bigger game than it actually can deliver. So I guess I'm curious for both of you as teachers of Torah, what happens when you hear Hillel and Shammai now? Does it sound to you like the groundbreaking vision for a world in which dissent is tolerated inside the halls of the academy? Or does it sound to you like this kind of bourgeois language of, of an idea of civility, which is, you know, again, one of these terms that's kind of gone out of fashion, because it depends who's asking who to be civil. Like, what does it sound like to you as teachers of Torah today? Wow, what a question. Pluralism is a profoundly ambiguous term. Um, and I think because it carries, what does it carry? It carries everything. It carries manyness. So I think like all metaphors or figurative language, it carries as much danger in it 
as it does redemption. Shavuot wasn't too long ago, and I, I guess during COVID times, it feels like it was yesterday. But I, I have been thinking a lot about fear of God. Uh, and why am I or why have I been afraid to be afraid? And I feel that the, yeah, I think pluralism as a concept contains potential for really dangerous erasure and potential for liberation, just as, um, you know, in, encountering the divine at Sinai has as much capacity for deep fear, heart-stopping fear, and, and also joy and futurity and, and continu continuity. It sounds though like if I can push you, you're more enchanted by the danger of the fear of God at the foot of Sinai than you are of the domesticity of the of the disputes between Hillel and Shammai. Yeah, I think what what I'm reacting to is I do think that there is danger in that term being used and then not explained um, or not interrogated. Uh, I also think that you know the vision that I see with Hillel and Shammai is. Is Hillel and Shammai and, and, and. It's uh, a landscape of yeshivot and learning spaces and opportunities and angles. For me, every time I hear that there's a new project or a new angle, thank God. For me, I, I long for that world where there's a yeshiva here and a yeshiva here and they've got some disputes and they're not the only game in town either. You know, that's really the world that, that I want to live in. And I think in that way, Pluralism in this metaphor is not, we're going to take this one really dissenting view and this other you know, totally opposed view and see what can happen when you put oil and water together. But it's also what happens when there is, to continue the metaphor, oil, water, and sugar, and egg, and all these other possibilities and combinations. I, I love that, Ariel, and I'm like nodding vigorously over here. I'm going to be excited about pluralism when in addition to the Svaraniks being at Svara and the Amudniks being at Amud, you know, and the folks from the people with disabilities, Beit Midrash being in their Beit Midrash and the, the working class folk being in their Beit Midrash and on and on. When we all periodically come together, we're going to have a really fascinating kind of elevated, I don't even want to call it pluralism because it's going to be so much more exciting than that. And the time for whatever that is may not be yet or might be alternatively while we're also in our spaces. But I also want to address something else you said about the teachers who really made the biggest impression on you. How we think about who our teachers can be, I think, is a big part of our projects, Ariel's and mine and, and others. You know, I think we've done a disservice to our learning environments by, by putting the people who know the most in front of the room. And I'm not, I'm not a fan of know-nothingness. It's, it's not that. I'm not anti-expertise. But we have a rule at Svara. We call it the 80-20 rule. No teacher gets in front of the room if they own the text. They feel like they've got a lock on it more than 80%. And I'm actually more of a fan of the 20-80, not the 80-20. In other words, if you've got a lock on 20% of it and you're still working out the other 80%, now we're going to have some exciting learning happening. And, you know, the Chavruta-based yeshiva learning has really always been centered on the Chavruta experience. The teacher has been the, the helper, the clarifier, the one who helps you get unstuck when you're stuck. It's never been a, a, about the one in front of the room. You know, the old joke about, oh, my rabbi's so smart, I don't understand a word he says. You know, th th that's 
what <laughs> that's what a, a lot of our of Jewish text teachers do. They make the student feel really disempowered. They are unintentionally disempowering because they're essentially telescoping to the student. You can never be me. Yeah, what we, what we want to be saying is I'm 15 minutes ahead of you. I'm in front of the room. I'm 15 minutes ahead of you. You can be me. I am you. Let's do this thing together. That's a, a deep, I don't again want to use the word pluralism, but that's a deep surfacing of an exciting, activating learning. Right. Or not, um, or not you need to be me or I need to be you, but we're both going to wind up being whoever we need to be but better yeah. or richer or smarter. I mean, I, the best advice I ever got as a teacher was um, as was nervous before teaching as oftentimes happened. Like you teach all the time and it's good to be nervous when you get in front of students. And the person said to me, just remember your job is not to be smart. Your job is to help people think. And that's it. And, and it's, it, it's overwhelming partly because it's oftentimes learner driven wow, that presenter was really articulate. That presenter was so smart. And the kind of, you know, you know, the experience of like someone who sits back in a lecture and is just absorbing or taking it in, which is actually, you don't want that. <laughs> yeah, they're supposed to be there doing the work also. And, and, and it was freeing to say, what I really want to do is to help people think. But Benet, you, you said something just now um, about we're not there yet. You said, that's the big bait mitrash that I want to have is when all of the graduates and students and teachers come out of Amud and Svara and, and Hadar and Panovich uh, and, and come together and learn. And, and you also said this in your Eli talk where you said uh, Jewish people are going to have a, a rich and vibrant future. I'm paraphrasing. It's just not going to be what it looks. We're just not going to recognize it or, or maybe we won't quite kind of be able to predict it or anticipate it. So what are going to be the threshold moments? where we say, this is what now we feel like we're, we've made headway to the Jewish future. If it's something we can't recognize, I, I also love that. That's very rabbinic. You're not supposed to live a, your life with the feeling that you end your goals in your lifetime. If you did that, your goals are too limited. But what are we working towards? What's the Jewish future that we're working towards? I have no idea <laughs> what the Jewish future we're working towards is going to look like. What I do know and what I'm committed to what my work is about is getting a new team on the field to create that Judaism. I trust the folks on the margins. And, and that's something that I think is relatively new. The rabbis trusted themselves, but they, they really had a distrust for Amcha. They had a distrust for the everyday person. And we have profound trust in the everyday person and profound belief that those in, on the margins, whatever their marginality, whether it's because of their gender or sexual orientation or race or ethnicity or disability, ability status, socioeconomic status, even Jewish, not Jewishness, they have essential insights. And I want to give them the confidence, the skills and the inspiration to see themselves as those players of the future. That's all I want to do. I'm completely hands off as to what they do with it. But I do know that if they keep their eye on the North Star, which is the kind of human being they're out to create, they're going to do a great job. I think we're working toward a future where no one is disposable, um, which, which is really something that I, I heard a lot, Vinay, in what you just shared, you know, that everybody's inherent value and in this context, Torah insights are valued and seen as important for the whole. And so I, I do think that the, 
the future we're looking toward, I don't know what community is going to look like. I don't know what peoplehood is going to look like, but I know that it can't happen without a deep tie between tradition and lived people, living people, uh, and, and your responsibility to one another, to the other within the community, however that's being defined or outside. It's that linking between how am I acting in my life and what is the learning that I'm putting into my brain when there is more of a balance broadly, that's the future we're looking toward. And, and if I'm being ambiguous, that's because similarly, I don't know. Uh, I don't know what the future looks like, but I hope when a parent in the future takes a look at what's going on, they can say, oh, that, that child who is this current moment resembles someone, an ancestor. I want to be that ancestor uh, communally who the future can resemble in some ways, but be nothing like. It feels like the whole business of Torah and Torah leadership can be the instrument that helps our communal leaders who are so focused on outcomes to to just the best outcomes are the ones you're not prepared to undertake yet, right? And and they're just there's a kind of limit of vision that Torah is supposed to supposed to push us against. It's supposed to it's supposed to challenge us to go beyond what we actually can see as possible in the world. Um, yeah. So I think about William Gibson a lot, who famously said, the future is already here. It's just not very evenly distributed. And what I think we need to do is look at those, if we're going to ask what might the Jewish future look like, look at those Jewish spaces that are already here, which are thriving, not the ones that are failing, the ones that are thriving, and they're largely currently on the margins. They're spaces that are queer normative. And by the way, Gen Z, no matter what their own sexual orientation or gender expression, will expect queer normative spaces in every Jewish space in the Jewish world, as well as outside the Jewish world. The spaces will be queer normative. They will be anti-racist. They will be political in their nature, and I'm not talking about X stance on X political issue. I'm talking about they will see themselves as political activist spaces. And I think we, we are on our way to seeing a future that, while it may be re- unrecognizable, will re-embody the activist radical foundations from which we've come. It'll be unrecognizable, but it will retroactively make a lot of sense. Yes, that's Um, right. All right, last question. Last question and just a short answer, if you can, for each of us. So I I have this theory that all Jewish educators, all of us are basically caricatures of ourselves in one way, which is, you know, we like to say that we're, you know, sampling from this text and that text, but we always kind of go back to a few, a couple of key texts that just keep showing up on our source sheets. So pick one. What's a text that you go back to just all the time, you kind of keep reading it. it, it somehow makes sense on 12 different topics that you're teaching that you want to teach it. Um, I see you're both nodding, so you maybe agree. Ariel, what's one text um, and one sentence on it and why you keep going back to it? The Piyut, the 11th century Piyut, Shacha uh, Vakeshcha by Ibn Gvirol. There's a line in it that says, what is it that can, or, or what is it about the heart and the willingness to name truth? I'm being a little interpretive here. What can that do? And what is the strength of the spirit that is within me? 
that's something that I, I have been turning to time and again, particularly in the moment of uprising and pandemic that we're in for myself, but then also communally, that sense of awe. What is it? This radical potential. What is that? And trying to just explore it and then we'll figure out how to use it and what to do with it. And I'm nodding again vigorously over here to, to, to uh, your naming of the radical potential. That's so important right now. And um, that also speaks to my go-to text, which is Sanhedrin 17a from the Talmud. And it's a dispute between two rabbis who are asking the question, what kind of judges do we need? What qualifications or character traits or characteristics do we need in those who are going to sit on the Sanhedrin to adjudicate capital cases and make life or death decisions. And it's essentially the question of what kind of human being is this, you know, ideal human being we're trying to create? What do they need to be like? And Rabbi Yochanan says, oh, we need, you know, this handful of characteristics in such a person. They need to be wise and of a certain age and so on and so forth. And Rabbi Yehuda says back to him, no, I think such a person, a person in whom we're going to entrust life and death, needs only to have one ability. And that's the ability to, in, in the words of the text, purify the sherets. The sherets is this creepy crawly, which the Torah defines definitionally, right, as impure. God says so, cannot be made pure. And he says the ability to take that which is immutably impure and say it's actually pure to prove it, to use the Torah to do so. In other words, who has the ability to know where the suffering is in the world, that moral sensitivity to know that, and then to be able to use the tradition to make the tradition better, even if it requires overturning the tradition itself, to solve the source of that suffering. That's the kind of person we want to create. Someone who can take the thing that God says yes to and say, God actually said no. Or the thing God said no to and say, no, actually, that's a yes. That kind of relationship to our received tradition, to God, to Torah, that's what we need in a human being. Well, I want to hear the 90-minute versions of both of those. <laughs> I'll tell you mine, which is um, is a short short text in Song of Songs, Rabbi the Midrash on the, the Book of Song of Songs, and it's about Usha. You know, Yavne gets a lot of press as the birthplace of rabbinic Judaism, but it's actually a terrible story. It's an exclusivistic story. It requires like leaving Jerusalem burning. It was the choice of the rabbis of themselves over others. But Usha, after the Bar Kokhba rebellion, is quite different. And the rabbis hint at this in this text in Shir Hashimarambo, where they say, after the persecution, our teachers gathered in Usha, and these were they, and it lists six or seven rabbis. And then it says they issued a call, which was um, anyone who has taught, let them come and teach. Anyone who has not yet taught, let them come and learn. In other words, the way that we constitute the Jewish people is creating this mythic Beit Midrash where all are welcome and where there's an assumption that some are going to come into the room actually have something already that they've learned and some are, are not quite there yet. But then the Gemara said, the Midrash says amazingly, they gathered and they learned um, and they took care of all of their needs, which is to say they didn't gather and some taught and some learned. But once you actually got everybody on the bus, everybody was in a space of learning. And the taking care of all of their needs is, a, is like a shortest way of imagining they built up the Jewish people again. But it's actually the Beit Midrash becomes the metaphor for the Jewish people that we want. Um, so I can't, I can't get enough of that 
that little piece of midrash because that's that's a kind of non-banal pluralism because it's about when you actually say we don't know what this is going to look like after we get together and we don't start the Beit midrash by articulating a theory of boundaries of who can come in and who can come out we just invite people in and we acknowledge some legitimacy of being of those who who have who have taught some torah already and that others are a little bit more vulnerable a little bit more on the learner side but once you actually enter a space of teaching and learning um, the only thing that happens is is learning so I'm really grateful uh, to both of you for being here today. And thanks to our listeners for listening to their show. I'll just, I'll say this show has been uh, a gift to me personally in getting to meet some really special people doing incredible work in the Jewish world. And today was no exception. I'm really grateful to B'nai Lappi of Savara and Ariel Rivera Corman of Amud for joining us today on our show. Identity Crisis is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute. It was produced and edited this week by David Svi Kalman. Our managing producer is Dan Friedman with music provided by So Called. In addition to the podcast, this podcast was streamed today live as part of our All Together Now summer learning series. You can learn more about All Together Now at shalomhartman.org. Please come study some Torah with us this summer. To learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, visit us online, shalomhartman.org. We want to know what you think about the show. You can write to us at identitycrisis at shalomhartman.org. You can subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, SoundCloud, and everywhere else podcasts are available. We'll see you next week, and thanks for listening.